Unfortunately, you're never too old to be bullied. Bullying in the workplace is a real issue. And it's not just single bullies. Bullying is a collective issue. So yes, there is one person that might really be leading that charge with all of the negative behavior, but it happens in the context of a culture. And these cultures can be identified by a few patterns and habits. Maybe this one sounds familiar. But the hierarchies are such that somebody in lower positions doesn't have the opportunity to, say, talk with the top manager, to talk with the dean, to talk to those people that can make a difference. And if you've been on the receiving end of this, you're not alone. Many Americans report having seen or experienced workplace bullying. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, how leaders shape the workplace culture. My first guest is Dorothy Suskind. She's a professor of education at Longwood University and serves on the National Workplace Bullying Coalition. She's a regular contributor to Psychology Today. Dorothy, tell me about what you call dragons and creatives in the workplace and what they have to do with bullying there. Oh, absolutely. So I think about creative in the workplace is usually has someone that has some pretty common characteristics. They tend to be um, well-liked, fun to be around. Um, they're fairly non-confrontational. They are usually very skilled in their industry. They have this strong sense of ethics and doing the right thing. And they look at things just in a different way. And because of that, they, you know, kind of uh, reshape the status quo. Huh. And what about dragons? Yeah, dragons is a, is a term that I use really to describe bullies. And usually when I think about a dragon, it is the person in the workplace that could be in a management position, but not necessarily. Um, they tend to enforce the unofficial rule book. And um, so they have like basic content knowledge, but they aren't necessarily experts. And that can cause some insecurity. We'll often see that they offload work. And um, they um, have a loose affiliation with the truth at times, um, but they are also very charismatic and they don't want to be the ones that are doing the dirty work. So they really give those jobs off to um, a group of people I call the shapeshifters. So they keep their claws clean and the dragons often, often spend a great deal of time making sure that they have influence with the higher ups. What do you mean by the dragon enforces the workplace unofficial rule book? Do you mean, you know, the way people get along with each other at work? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really nice way to put it. The unofficial rule book will kind of think about like how we look or how we act or the types of clothes we wear. But it is really just those list of things that people in the organization tend to do in order to fit in and feel the sense of belonging. So if somebody who you call a creative is being bullied at work, what's happening to that person? One of the interesting things about bullying is that when you are in it, it is so deeply devastating. But when we look across cases across the United States, but also across the world, uh, the cycle is fairly predictable. We usually see something where there is this target identification, and um, and that's when the creative, someone decides, that bully, that dragon decides that that creative is a threat. Maybe she asked too many questions. Maybe she She's overly productive. Maybe she calls out bad behavior. And then there's kind of the stage of jealousy and battle plans. And often during that phase, the dragon will pretend to be friends with the creative and, you know, kind of disclose personal information. Like, I've never told anyone this but you. And that, in, you know, just natural human behavior encourages the creative to share things that could later be used against her. And then next, we'll often see a precipitation event. And it is certainly not the cause of the bullying, but it's really used to rally the troops. It might be that the creative gets a promotion or shares a, a, shares a fantastic marketing campaign that gets a lot of recognition. And then there is this underground battle that ensues. And the dragon will really kind of start this lunchtime gossip, usually um, couched in kind of benevolence. Like, I, I really care about... Um, 
um, I really care about Julie, but I feel like she might be in over her head. And then the dragon, it's pretty typical, will plant seeds of doubt with HR and also to the dragon's boss. And usually at that point, we kind of get into that phase five, and that's where the attacks and mobbing happen. And often the creative is put on a performance improvement plan. She is left out of meetings. She's punished for not being there. She's ostracized by people that she really thought were her friends. And then um, really most devastatingly that um, she is just really pushed out and doesn't have a role and loses her sense of belonging. And then that final phase is when things start to wrap up. And unfortunately, the research shows between like 60 and 70% of people that are targeted lose their job. And so often they're asked to sign NDAs or non-disclosure agreements. And so everything that happened at the organization is not public. And we know that there are really significant health consequences too, that people that are bullied um, suffer. Is it hard to see this? Do you think other employees think, what? I don't see that at all. It depends. It depends. I would say that there are organizations, and you can probably think of people and places in your own professional orbit that do have a reputation for bullying behavior. But what is so tricky is that people that are on the same level of the bully usually are very clear about the behaviors that are going on. But what the bully or the dragon does so very well is that they are very charismatic when talking with managers and higher-ups. So it is often the people that are in power that don't see it or don't want to see it, especially if it is a person that, if the bully themselves are fairly productive or have a fair amount of power, and that leader just doesn't want to rock the boat and do the necessary work to get that person to change that behavior or move that person out of a management position. Is it ever the creative's fault? I'm going to go with no. I don't think it is the creative's fault. So often in the media and in movies, we think about bullying as an individual act. But what the research shows really clearly is that bullying is not about the individual. So yes, there is one person that might really be leading that charge with all of the negative behavior, but it happens in the context of a culture. And we know Know their specific cultural characteristics that allows bullying to happen. What are those cultural characteristics? Yeah, like some of the things that we really see across industries is that there is a really strict hierarchy. And of course, organizations need hierarchies in some way, but the hierarchies are such that somebody in lower positions doesn't have the opportunity to say, talk with the top manager, to talk with the dean, to talk to those people that can make a difference. We also see that those cultures tend to have a lack of transparency. So when something goes wrong, it's really covered up instead of put on on the table and say, gosh, I want to understand what happened here. Let's get curious. The organizations also tend to have fairly homogeneous thinking where people, you know, think similar things and kind of talking out or pushing um, intellectual boundaries is discouraged. And there's also a lack of constructive feedback that when problems do arise, let's say with the dragon or the bully, giving that person very specific feedback about what's happening. And um, also we see that when there are significant problems that the organization tends to look the other way and they're really scared to dive into the mess of untangling the knots that are contributing to that culture. Do you think the problem is rare? No, I don't think the problem is rare. I think most people have been bullied or they have witnessed bullying, unfortunately. What about you? Have you witnessed it? 
Yeah, I've gone through a couple really um, difficult bullying experiences, and I've always had a pretty strong sense of self and a benevolent worldview and really think that when you do the right thing in your workplace that, you know, good things happen and you can help your organization carry out their mission. And when I was bullied, it really, um, it really impacted me. I mean, it made me, you know, really struggle with a deep sense of loss. What do bully victims tend to go through? Does it tend to usually be relatively mild or is it devastating? It's actually really devastating. A lot of times what we see is it is actually the primary care doctor who first notices something. You know, you go to the doctor and they're like, wow, your blood pressure has gone through the roof. And then some of those emotional pieces are withdrawal and being hypervigilant while at work, but also while at home, migraines, anxiety, depression, PTSD, um, certainly suicidal ideations. Why is it such an intractable problem. I mean, bullying is so horrific. Why can't it be solved easily in the workplace? Yeah, that's a that's a really um, that's a really good question. I would say first um, we have to really look at the types of people that we promote. So often in organizations, people are really good at their job, and then they get promoted out of that piece that they are good at, and they start managing people, and um, they're not equipped with those skills. So I certainly think that that is just a really large part of it. I think, too, that we know that there are certain characteristics that really do buffer against bullying, and sometimes those are things we don't see in organizations. And those those buffers would be things like having some autonomy at work, um, having an opportunity to collaborate at different levels of the hierarchy and across specialties, allowing people to solve their own problems without being micromanaged, and um also having professional development that really directly relates to um, what they're interested in and what they're excited about. It's interesting. I've read that you've said one of the worst things that happens to the person who's being bullied is really just being ostracized, isolated, left out of the club at work. Yeah, I can say more of that. A lot of times, um, a question that I get from people is, I, I don't understand what is the big deal about bullying. It's just a personality conflict. And we know that that is absolutely wrong. Bullying is really an assault on someone's humanity. And I think that there are a couple of lenses to look through that make that more um evident. There was a gentleman named Harold Garfinkel. He wrote back in the 50s, I think it was 1956, this article called Conditions of a Successful Degradation Ceremony. And I really think it speaks to what bully victims go through. And the idea is that once that creative is targeted, they are stigmatized. You can kind of think about the research from Goffman. And so it's not just that that person is bad at their job. It's actually that they they are a bad person themselves. And um, then this character assassination is launched. And like we talked about earlier, that person is really pushed out of the inner circle. And we know from research that when someone is ostracized, it has detrimental impact on kind of their sense of self. So it's not just that they are losing their sense of belonging in their community. They're really losing their sense of belonging to who they believe themselves to be. There is a woman named Janeth Bullman, and she'll talk about shattered assumptions, and it really shatters victims' assumptions that the world is good, that events are meaningful, and that they themselves are good and worthy people. Why can't they just report this to HR? Isn't HR there for precisely this? 
yes, it is important to um, report to HR and it's important to go in with very clear documentation and very little um, emotion. But what we see in the research, unfortunately, is that when people go to HR, they tend to suffer pretty significant um, retaliation. And I think so much of it is HR does so many things well and it is such a difficult job. But when it comes to workplace abuse, there is this conflict of interest when HR is trying to protect the organization. And that really can be at odds with protecting the individual. What's your best advice for emerging from the deep hole when you realize you will not have vengeance? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that that is a place that when you're a bully, that you that you really have to get to because it is so easy. And I've been there myself to get hung up on this idea of, um, you know, someone acknowledging what happened and there being repercussions. But more often than not, there are not. One of the reasons that bullying is so destructive is that you believe yourself to be this person and and this bully kind of hijacked that narrative and painted you as someone that you absolutely are not. So taking yeah. back your power and rewriting the story and really highlighting those places where you stood up for what was right, even at a great cost to yourself. Some other things that are really effective is to create a timeline. We know that trauma is stored in the senses, and so it's not linearly like other memories. So to be able to create a timeline if this happened first, then this happened, and then this happened can really help. And also um, to zoom in on what was violated, to get really clear about what was violated in your case. And it might be something like a sense of fair play or a sense of mission or a sense of care, but kind of understand like what happened, what was the violation that was the most damaging. And I'd say lastly, sometimes we talk about like a ceremony of rebirth. We don't don't do rituals in the United States very often, but having this idea of deciding that what are the things that you are going to disconnect from, the people, the places, the thoughts, and then maybe write a letter and burn it or something like that. So there is this visual of disconnecting from the harm. Dorothy Suskin, this is so powerful. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and with good reason. Oh, absolutely. It's such a pleasure to be here. Dorothy Suskind is a professor of education at Longwood University and serves on the National Workplace Bullying Coalition. She's also a regular contributor to Psychology Today. A lot of leadership models are focused on the bottom line and relationships happen or they don't. But Chris Reyna says that's not enough. Reina is the executive director of Virginia Commonwealth University's Institute for Transformative Leadership, and he believes relationships are actually critical to the bottom line. Chris, you work to help people become better leaders, even transformative leaders. How is a transformative leader different from someone who's just doing her job and getting it done? Transformative leaders are seeking to continually develop themselves and in developing themselves, be open to change. A transformative approach to leadership really is about not putting the bottom line first. It's about bringing out the best in people and creating a culture of care where people feel they belong. Um, and that includes deep listening and mindful attention and deep understanding. Um, and so that in itself is really where the word transformative comes from because our leadership models out there are not transformative. They are um, about bottom line. They're not about being transformative forces for social good. At the Institute for Transformative Leadership, are you training mostly big corporate CEOs or is it a wide range of folks who lead others? wide range of folks. Um, one of the ways that we define transformative leadership is um, this idea that the wisdom is in the room. The wisdom is in the room, meaning that you don't have to have a position or title to be a leader. Leadership is a set of influence behaviors. And if we define leadership that way, that means all of us at all times and all places and all ways are potentially exhibiting 
influence behaviors, and thus we are all leaders. Um, and so it's certainly folks from large corporations, from not-for-profits, uh, very exciting that we're doing this deep work also at VCU, at the university level, as well as the School of Business. So um, another important aspect of transformative leadership is that you seek to change self and you seek to change the system. Do you get pushback sometimes from the people you're coaching who start out thinking that you're training them to do something extra, but that is not really their core mission, that they're here to increase profits, reduce expenses, um, please the boss, and knock heads together if need be. When I first started doing this work, that response happened quite a bit. I had folks say, you know, that's not my job to care for people. That's not my job to listen. My job is to get things done. And one of the key foundations of transformative leadership is that most of us are trained and we grow up believing that leadership is a way to get things done. And we hope that relationships are built. And yet transformative leadership says, no, it's about building deep and caring relationships first and foremost. And because of those depth of relationships, people do amazing things. So it really flips the script completely. You've said that often people in charge see workers as in the way of them getting tasks done. Do you think that's a common mindset that somebody in a leadership position often sees others around that person as sort of in the way of the core mission of the leader herself or himself? Absolutely. We all show up in the workplace with our ego intact. And when we have our ego and it's sort of running the show, you know, it's really all about us. And we have a lot of things on our calendars and we have a lot of requests from others. And that's that ego saying, I got to get all this stuff done. And I think as we learn to, to lead and live a little less with that ego, we see that we are actually very much a part of an interconnected society and system in which kind of all pieces are, are related. So if I can drop my ego, if I can move beyond just seeing a situation from my own perspective and my own inbox, if you will, then it, it lets me settle into the moment and connect with another human in a very different way and in a way that can lead to a transformative experience occurring between two people and we get more done. But how can you be other oriented and sort of drop that ego when you feel there's too much on your plate? So mindfulness exercises are key in, in helping us let some of the stress and anxiety go. And it, it does seem that it would almost be opposite. Right? We may expect that when we're the most stressed, that's when we don't have the time to be mindful, but it's really the opposite. When we're the most stressed or when we're the most anxious, that's the time that if we can just remember to, to symbolically push pause, that could be a quick walk. It could be just sitting in your, your seat at your desk, just letting the shoulders drop, closing the eyes for a moment and just allowing the mind to let go. We, we typically go through the day with this very tense body and tense mind. But just that acknowledgement of that, the fact that we're experiencing helps us then be more in control of it. I'm captivated that a core tenet of yours is that these transformative leaders develop deep listening and deep compassion with employees and coworkers. One of the biggest gifts we can ever give anyone is simply to listen, seek to understand rather than to respond to them. When you are coaching people for this deep listening and deep caring of coworkers, how do you do it? How, how, do, you, how do you help them grow that muscle? It's very much from a perspective of a facilitator asking questions and talk about what bad listening is. And we can all kind of make fun of it and we can say, you know, yeah, it's, it's being on your phone and it's being in your head thinking about your next meal. And so we, we sort of talk about what it looks like not to listen. And then we say, okay, actually, well, none of us would do all of those things 
at once that exhibit bad listening or ineffective listening, how many of us do one or two of those things almost every single time we're listening to someone else? And I think that it turns it inward very quickly. And, And so this goes to the question you asked before also of folks saying, you know, it's not my job, but we start to see that the way we treat people matters. And that goes for home relationships and work relationships. And so when you make this human connection of how do we do better, I think it really gets folks to understand that we should and can do better, and it is our job. I can totally see how this makes life better for us individually and for people around us, for the workplace. Can it really make the work go better, be better? So when we experience the right tools and the right mindset and the right resources combined with the right challenge, we go into this zone of, of flow, really. So when when time flies and we're not aware of uh, the day going by, that's a flow state. And flow states are brought about, again, by this coming together of, of what we bring to the task and then what the task needs of us. And when we have that synergy between the two, that's when we we go into a flow state. And transformative leaders are able to create those experiences for themselves, for others in their span of care. This is so inspirational. Could you leave us with maybe just a couple of things each of us might practice and be able to remember in the workplace? So perhaps the easiest way to set yourself up for success is to at the beginning of a meeting, what is it that you hope to have happen in this meeting? At the beginning of the day, what is it that you hope to experience during that day? And I specifically mean, think about the relationships and what you want people to feel. We often say, what do we want people to do and what outcomes do we want? But again, those are task-oriented. Let's think relationship-based. If I go into every meeting and say, I want the person or people that are in this meeting with me to feel valued, to feel cared for, and to feel like they're a part of this, and we just set that intention, it's much more likely that we're able to actually create a meeting and even a transformative experience in which people feel that. We're beginning with the end in mind and we are making it happen by being intentional about it. And so final piece of advice, just think about, think less about what we want people to do or to accomplish in a meeting and more as a leader about what we want people to experience and what we want people to feel in a meeting. Chris Raina, I'm so grateful for your conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on with you and chat with you. Chris Raina is the executive director of Virginia Commonwealth University's Institute for Transformative Leadership. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Do you believe in your own success in the workplace? I mean, when you get a raise or promotion, do you really believe you deserve it? Or do you rush to discredit your success as luck? Alexandra Dunn is a professor of management at the University of Mary Washington. She says the inability to internalize our success has a name, imposter syndrome. Alex, what's an example of imposter syndrome? I mean, in some ways, we all relate to the feeling of being inadequate when we start a job. 
What is actually imposter syndrome? What it is, is that we are not actually internalizing our own accomplishments. So if you use the example of getting a job, instead of saying, I got this job because I have all these wonderful skills and qualifications or because I worked really hard to get here, we would say things like, I got this job because I got lucky. Or I got this job because they haven't necessarily figured out that I don't know what I'm doing yet, but they will eventually. <laughs> so instead right. of saying to ourselves, you know, I deserve this, we dismiss that success as either luck or timing or, or kind of tricking other people into thinking that we know what we talk, we're talking about. Well, doesn't everybody feel that way? So do we all have imposter syndrome? A statistic is that around 70% of people have experienced imposter syndrome at one point or another. So there are certainly people right. who, you know, never have these feelings of self-doubt, but there are plenty of people and that 70% is people across the board, right? Not just women, not just men, um, very successful people. And actually there's research out there that says that very successful people actually experience imposter syndrome more than others because they're so worried that they're going to fail. Um, so there are a lot of people who feel it. Um, where I think it comes into play is, you know, what we actually do with those feelings and how we react to those feelings. Give me a few examples of it. Times you've experienced it, times people close to you have, and maybe some textbook cases also. Sure. So I can start with my own personal feelings about it. So I went to graduate school uh, directly after college. And when I thought about what I was going to do with my PhD, I always thought about being an academic and becoming a professor. But then when I actually you know, thought about, oh, how am I going to do this? I'm around all of these really smart people all of the time. I'm around people who do this amazing research am I going to be one of those people or how am I going to be one of those people? And will somebody ever believe one day that I am one of those people? <laughs> um, right. So that was, that was kind of when my imposter syndrome started, I would say. Uh, when, I, when I started teaching, I was closer in age to students than I was to other faculty at my university. And so that also brought up feelings of, you know, when are my students going to realize that maybe I don't know exactly what I'm talking about, or maybe I don't have enough experience with what I'm teaching yet. So um, those are some personal experiences. I run the Women in Business program at Mary Washington, and I noticed that not only were students having these feelings, but these feelings were actually stopping them from doing things. You see it in both men and women and both male and female students. I do see it in both. I see it more so in female students. I mean, there's a lot of research on not just undergraduates, but women in general. We stop ourselves more often from applying to jobs. So if we look at a job description and there's one or two things on that job description that we think, oh, I'm not sure if I'm qualified for that. We won't apply for the position, right? Whereas with men, they're more likely to say, oh, there's maybe a few things on here that I don't know what to do, but what's the worst that can happen, right? I'll apply anyway. And, you know, if they call me back, great. If they don't, I'm in the same place as I was before I applied to the job. And what do you think causes that? Why would men more often think, sure, I'll apply, why not? And why would people, let's say, in the majority population think, sure, this is for me, as opposed to someone in the minority population? So there's some research out there that talks a little bit about how imposter syndrome and stereotype threat are linked. And stereotype threat is basically if you are part of a minority group, um, and I'll use women again as an example. And so one of the stereotypes that we hear yeah. often is, you know, women aren't good at math or women, this whole STEM field in general. And so what stereotype threat says is that if we acknowledge and know about that stereotype, not only are we perhaps nervous to perform math in general, but now we have this other layer where we're also nervous that if we don't do well, we're going to confirm that stereotype. 
So we're, we're saying, okay, I didn't do well on that math test. And that just further confirms this feeling or these thoughts that women aren't good at math. Are there people who have more imposter syndrome feelings and more often than others? Yes, for sure. So can you have sort of a bad case of it? Certainly. And I think it's a combination of two things, right? Of course, we can always work on messaging externally and think about how we word things, the the gendered language that we use, and that's all things that organizations can work on. But then there are things that we can do ourselves internally to try and reduce some of those feelings. I think with imposter syndrome, there is this kind of thought that, oh yeah, well, I have this and, you know, it's just a normal thing and it just is what it is. But there are plenty of things that we can do to try and help us, one, recognize that we're feeling that way, and then two, be able to overcome those feelings. But that takes, like with everything, self-reflection, work, um, recognition that you're having the feelings and then saying to yourself, how am I going to deal with those feelings as they continue to come up? What do you think are often personality traits or childhood experiences it might have led to it? I think that a lot of people who are very hardworking, who tend to be perfectionists, so perhaps high on traits like conscientiousness, high on traits like agreeableness, so we're thinking that we always need to put our best foot forward. Um, If we have really high fear of failure, we see imposter syndrome pop up more as well. If we are feeling like we need to be the person who can do it all, and then we start to feel like we need to be able to do all of these things, and no one can find out that we might not know everything. Are we born with it? Is there a certain personality type more likely to have it, or does it get created by early experiences? It's probably a good mixture of both that you think about the big five personality traits, conscientiousness. And then if you combine that with neuroticism, this feeling that, you know, you're always worried about failing, but then with the conscientiousness, you want to always do everything well and you want to be at the top of the class or the top of the job, whatever it might be. If you combine those two traits, I mean, it, it is a recipe for this anxiety and doubt that you might feel. But it's also with messaging and things that we see and things that we hear in our external environment all the time. Are people who experience it more likely to have had demanding parents? I think it's not necessarily demanding parents. It's it's how we talk about the accomplishments that we that we get. So if we learn over time and when we're young that we should and that we could take credit for our accomplishments and take credit for our achievements, right? We're not necessarily saying never give anybody else credit. Not like the whole there's no I in team thing. But We have to learn that it's okay and that it's a good thing to say, yes, I did this, and that we're not downplaying our accomplishments. And and that does come from talking with and learning and listening to how other people that you're around talk about their accomplishments. A lot of it is also thinking about and learning how to talk to yourself positively. So rather than putting yourself down for maybe a small mistake, thinking about how we can change that. Um, to a positive conversation with ourselves. Instead of saying, I did this really poorly and I failed, saying it's a chance for me to learn something new. Looking back to grad school and being a young professor and worrying what the students think, what helped you most? Talking with other people. So I would say one of the things that has helped me the most is actually just talking about imposter syndrome, realizing that other people go through the same feelings because then all of a sudden you're not isolated. You're not saying to yourself, I'm the only person who's worried about this. You learn that there are plenty of other people. Um, I've I've been able to, and I've been very lucky that I have a colleague um, who is around my age who started teaching at the same time as I did. And we check in on each other pretty often. We say to ourselves, you know, how are you doing with this? Have you made sure to, you know, take credit for all the work that you're doing? And if we say something to one another and 
you know, the other person catches it, we call each other out for it. We say, well, why are you saying that you just got lucky about that? Or why are you saying that you just got picked to be on this committee because they had nobody else to do it? You got picked for it for a reason, right? And so having kind of that check, whether that's with a colleague, whether that's with a spouse at home, family members, I think is really helpful. You know, I remember the first board I served on in a small community, and I thought, how am I a board member? Exactly. What do I have? Yeah, yeah, of course, right? And that's like an extremely normal feeling. Um, The thing, though, for you is that you were able to kind of get past that original feeling and you still said yes to the position, right? And you still said, sure, I'll try this out. And then, of course, there was probably some self-doubt as you went through the first meeting and as you went through um, various different stages of being a board member. But- you still you still took the position and you still said, I'll see what this is all about. And learned so yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. See, and there's your positive self-talk about how much you learned <laughs> from it. Well, Alex Dunn, thank you for sharing your insight on this with me. You are so welcome. It's been a great experience. Alexandra Dunn is a professor of management at the University of Mary Washington. The pandemic transformed the American workplace. People lost their jobs, boomers retired, and millennials who hadn't lost their jobs suddenly had lots of options and flexibility. Ben Biermeyer Hansen likes to call what's often dubbed the great resignation as the great contemplation. He's a professor of organizational psychology at Radford University. Ben, you've gained insight about what people can do to retain workers. What have you found? What do people want? They want kind of basic things. They want to be satisfied with their work, the nature of their work. They want to get along with their coworkers. They want to be at least satisfied with their supervisors. Um, But they also want flexibility. I think if we've learned anything from the pandemic, that there's, there's multiple ways that we can do our work. And people being able to exert some more autonomy, some more control in how they do it makes a big difference in people wanting to stay where they are. By flexibility, do you mostly mean they want to work from home or enter and leave the office at different hours? Yeah, it it definitely can be both. It could be a hybrid situation. I don't think it means necessarily having a remote job. I think it means being able to say, yeah, I'm going to come in at 10 in the morning and leave at 7 in the evening today because I've got a doctor's appointment or come in at 6 and leave at 3. Some organizations are doing that really well. They've got core hours, you know. Everyone's got to be around from noon till 2 for meetings. Um, and those, those places tend to see a lot less turnover. It makes perfect sense that people want that flexibility, but... Haven't we craved it since time immemorial? Suddenly, we're getting it. Why? I mean, I think to a, to a large degree, we, we were forced to when the pandemic hit. Some industries, many industries, were allowed to go remote. I don't know if we've always craved it or if we, I mean, maybe that's true, but I think we realized that we craved it and could do it during the pandemic. Do you mean we were basically a nation full of very hardworking office workers and other kinds of workers and discovered during the time at home during the pandemic that, oh, life can be different? Yeah, yeah. It's, it was this, you know, for some of this giant light bulb that went off of saying, oh, God, I, I don't have to live like this, right? Because if you're, you know, let's say you're, you're a hardworking office worker, you're in the office 60 hours a week, It's kind of hard to see out of that, right? It's just, that's what you know. And when there's there's a forced slowdown there, people took stock. I I was talking to a colleague of mine, and she recently heard someone come up with the term, I, I don't know where they heard it, the great contemplation. And I really liked that because, yes, we had the great resignation of people leaving their jobs. But this idea of contemplation of that slowing down, of taking stock of gosh, do I want to be doing what I'm doing? Or is this this fear and uncertainty that we had in early 2020 helping us take a step back and say, gosh, I always wanted to open a bakery or, you know, <laughs> whatever it happened to be. I know that's true in my office. I saw a lot of changes in how people do their work and how they're satisfied. 
What about you and your own work environment? What have you noticed? It's varied, I guess. I mean, we, I'll never forget, my wife and I were on spring break in Hawaii, um, which, you know, tough life. But midway through that, we, we've been tracking this, you know, and midway through the break, we get an email saying, Radford University is going fully remote. There's an extra week of spring break. Uh, do not come back in the office. Right. <laughs> and we just had this moment of like, holy cow, like also we're not used to being online teachers, right? Online faculty. We can do our research online often, but there was the, okay, we're suddenly working from home. And then there was, and you, you see this elsewhere in different places, a push to come back of saying, well, that's over back to business as usual. And I think we've settled more on a, you know, we've got to be here for certain stuff, but we also want to give each other the grace and flexibility to do what works well for, for each individual. Did you see a lot of indignation over that initial, everyone back in, it's over? Oh, yeah. There was indignation and there was also, for certainly some of my colleagues, I think some fear, right? This was early on in getting vaccines. You're telling us that we're back to teaching in person. We can't teach online And that, I think, was particularly hard for my colleagues that were older or had chronic health conditions. That was challenging. Tell me a bit about the Great Resignation, where workers didn't just work remotely, they left their jobs entirely. Was that primarily boomers who were going to retire anyway? It was much bigger than that. A lot of younger people quit. Oftentimes, they went to go do something totally different. And so we're, we're kind of back to this idea of, of the great contemplation of this isn't giving me what I need. And that could be financial, that could be pay, but that could also be autonomy, flexibility, opportunity for advancement. I think for a lot of people, it was looking ahead 10 years and being like, life is precious and oh God, I can't do this for another 10 years. You know, that's, that spurred a lot of it. It's interesting because you, you, you saw it especially... In the industries where there was very little flexibility during the pandemic, healthcare, education, hospitality, a lot of people in those industries didn't get the flexibility, didn't get the remote work, and kind of looked at it and said, this isn't tenable, this isn't working. I was wondering about that. I was wondering if even in those industries, which initially seemed inflexible, has there come to be more remote work somehow and more hybrid work? My general sense is no. My sister works as a nurse in Chicago at a major hospital. You know, she's still got the same shift schedule that she had during the pandemic. Working some holidays, working weekends, you know, whatever whatever it happens to be. The hospital certainly did a lot in terms of, you know, putting in more personal protective gear and things like that. But in terms of how they fundamentally operate, I don't think things have changed. And I think that's probably true if you're a bartender or a K-12 through teacher. I think what people are noticing now is a lot of those positions in hospitality and places where there was not remote work flexibility, there actually are simply fewer workers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you drive up and down Main Street anywhere, I'd imagine there's help wanted signs. I think to a degree, it's probably because people don't want to do it, right? They want an option that provides more enrichment and opportunity for them than than hospitality. But businesses haven't been able to, to find a solution to that aside from raising pay. If pay only goes so far, how can you, in a fairly inflexible job, offer more flexibility? One of the big ones is just improving climate and culture. It's it's one thing to go to a job that isn't maybe that rewarding and to have a boss, you know, that, that's truly wonderful and supportive. And it's a whole other thing to go to a job that isn't that rewarding and have a boss that yells at you if you're two minutes late or if you drop a French fry. I don't know if that actually happens, but right? Like the the quality of relationship with your coworkers and with your supervisor and the climate that you work in makes a huge difference. I talk to my my undergraduate students a lot. I say, you know, a lot of them are working jobs that are not where they want to end up long-term. And invariably when I ask them, well, you know, what, what keeps you there? And they say, I like my coworkers or I like my boss. And that makes a big difference. Does it surprise you that people would leave money on the table to have more flexibility in their lives? No, it does not. No. I mean, when we... And certainly that's, that's, not, a, that's not everyone, but back to... I don't know. When you get people to think about 
what they want in life and what they value. And then you start talking about money. Everyone says, yeah, more money would be great. But once you get to a certain point, the gains in happiness that money gets you go down considerably. And things like time, to enjoy friends, family, hobbies that you have, gets more and more important. Do you think we're still in the Great Resignation? I don't think so, no. And I, I, I also don't think it's necessarily like a discrete, this was the start and stop of it. It was just a, a trend that, that was very apparent. And Anthony Klotz, who's a professor now, I think, in London, pointed it out and coined the term. But no, the evidence shows, is showing that you know, quit rates have dropped significantly since last year or the year before. And there's, there's a couple of reasons why this could be. One is you're, you're kind of in the news cycle, you're hearing about the labor market tightening up. And, you know, in the last year, there's been tech layoffs, and those are always really publicized and really visible. So that may be having people stop and say, you know what, the uncertainty, the risk that I'd take by quitting is much higher. In the pandemic, people could and did kind of look at it to say, well, yeah, I can quit today and find something else tomorrow and it'll probably be for more money and I can negotiate what I want. That's less true. At the same time, the optimist in me kind of wants to say, yes, but also businesses have listened. People have more flexibility. There is hybrid work. There is flex time. There's, you know, increased work on improving organizational culture, increasing diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, all these things that make people look around when they think maybe what, you know, they have a bad day and think, maybe I'll quit. Then you look around and you think, oh, maybe this, is, this isn't so bad. So I'd like to think that there's been a tangible improvement in employee quality of life as organizations saw people fleeing. What can you say to supervisors, bosses, company owners to keep in mind that maybe will make a difference in the lives of their workers? Yeah, um, probably just that your employees are your most valuable resource. Ben Biermeyer Hansen, thank you for sharing your insight with me on With Good Reason. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to talk. Biermeyer Hansen is a professor of organizational psychology at Radford University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.